Welcome. This is Coppercast, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon, and our guest today is Danny Masters, chairman of CoinShares, a company I suspect you all already know. Welcome, Danny. Hey, thank you. And I guess I sh- maybe I shouldn't assume that. So for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with CoinShares, give us your background and, you know, let's go way back. Like, how did you get your start in finance? So I was a double major in uh, in physics and business, and I uh, did a brief stint in the com- uh, physical commodities business uh, with Shell Oil. Uh, and it wasn't too long after that that I was recruited by Solomon Brothers. And this was sort of the dawn of the commodities business as we now know it. Uh, I did seven years there, um, including physical trading, derivative trading, um, physical operations for that company around the world. Uh, and then I moved to JP Morgan. Spent five years at JP Morgan. I ended up running the, uh, the commodities group there. Uh, I sat occasionally on the risk committee of the bank and got a really great exposure to uh, not just the vast array of clients that JP Morgan had, but also the business practices, which I thought were, were really tight. And, uh, and I came away with the impression JP Morgan was a really solid company, as it's proved to be. But nonetheless, um, after a dozen years in investment banking, as you do, I left to start my own business, and I started a company called Global Advisors in 1999. And our mission was very straightforward. It was, let's bring commodities as an asset class to investors that hadn't experienced it before. And believe it or not, in 99, there really wasn't much in the way of direct investor access to commodities. So our goal was, let's try and explain a difficult investment thesis, let's assemble a team of experts, and let's create investable product fit for the marketplace. And, uh, and we did that for a dozen years, and, and, and the price of oil and the price of copper and the price of gold uh, were quite strong during that period as China emerged as a really big player on the world commodity stage. Uh, but that ran its cycle, oil went from 10 to $100, and, um, and the, the play was kind of run, and I stumbled on Bitcoin. I stumbled on Bitcoin by, because I saw a TV show, I think it was a CNBC show, you know, we hedge fund managers tended to have that on in the background with the sound off. And I just saw the chart, and like so many commodity charts I'd seen before, it just exuded energy. And I didn't even know what it was, so I flipped on the sound. It was Bitcoin, it was trading at $12. Uh, But having come from a cent or two, uh, it looked like a pretty powerful chart. So I sent $10,000 of my own money to a Chinese agricultural bank no one had ever heard of before. I got a credit on a little-known exchange called Mt. Gox, <laughs> and I bought my first, uh, I want to say, you know, a thousand Bitcoin or something like that for a you know pretty cheap price, um, and that was the beginning. And, and I, you know, that was that was kind of a gain. But what I did do after that was I became fascinated with the technology. Like a lot of technologies, I think it is always the most powerful when you see people building on what other people have done. So Merkle trees were not new. Secure hash algorithm 256 was not new. Um, Networking was not new, but they've been combined in a really unique way to create, and if I have to explain crypto in three seconds, that part of the internet where you can't copy and paste. And so that was the first uh, uh, initiation. I then stumbled into Wences Cesaris, who is a pretty famous guy in our industry, created, still runs Zappo. And Wences made me realize that crypto is money. Um, and once I'd established both those two things, I was sold. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious whether, 
I mean, your, your background in commodities and, you know, four years ago when institutions started looking at crypto earnestly, there was a lot of comparisons that were drawn that people were trying to figure out where does Bitcoin or crypto fit in my traditional box of thinking? And was it a commodity or, you know, obviously it's not a security, we kind of know that now, but those questions weren't answered then. And for someone with a background in commodities like yourself, did it just jump out at you like, this is just another commodity, but it's a technology or, you know, was there more to it? Here's what you need to know about commodities before you go down that road. What you need to know about commodities is that commodities do not give you validation of your theory while you're in the trade. And let me, let me unpack that sort of riddle. Uh, when I got into the hedge fund business for myself, my thesis was China would be an enormous commodity producer. But the art was not to wait the 15 years until China was a really important commodities producer. The art is to figure out that that story that you're on too early is going to be picked up by any intelligent person that runs the numbers. So if you can, un- if you can discover that rough diamond, then... Uh, you can be confident that other people will see likewise and that market will go. And that exactly what happened you know, with China commodities. The price peaked well before the demand peaked, but it was the story um, that actually moved the price and actually changed patterns and behavior uh, and, and did that good economic magic. Now, your question about crypto and what kind of an asset is it? I've traded many, many different asset classes um, at the banks I worked at within the hedge fund I ran. And I've traded in many different geographies. And what, all, all, what I also found unique about crypto, and Bitcoin in particular, because that was the only crypto <laughs> when we started, um, was that it was different things to different people. It was completely global. You know, we were seeing nodes spiking up in Yemen. And it was completely global, like no other commodity you've ever seen. It's completely fluid, like no other commodity you've ever seen. Uh, it could be currency to a currency trader, commodities to a commodities trader, tech to a tech investor, tech long-term private equity to a private equity investor. And that was another reason I thought the story would be particularly compelling. Not just money for the internet, but an aspect which many different investors in many different places could themselves buy into. So that, that's a good point. And I think in, in your show and tell segment, the video that we've just recorded and to our listeners, you can find it on our, our YouTube page. You looked at business models powered by crypto and how that's changing what our concept of, of the internet is now. Where do you think corporates are in interacting with blockchains? Like you walked us through web one, web two, and now web three. So, I mean, how far into web three are we? Or how far do we are we going to go in web three? I think if you go back to, I think it was August of 2020, when Paul Jones, the famous US hedge fund manager and former colleague of mine, um, was, you know, wrote his, his, his letter, which I think captured a lot of imagination. And he talked about Bitcoin as being a particularly efficient hedge against um, certain other economic woes like inflation. And I think that was a seminal moment because the world changed from corporates, banks, hedge fund managers, family offices, sort of, if you work for those organizations, there was some career risk if you owned Bitcoin because it was wild. And six months after Paul's letter, there was some career risk if you didn't own Bitcoin because the market price had been so buoyant. He'd called it, you hadn't done it, why didn't you do it? So that was a big, big change. And 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 we've seen you know tremendous 
increase in engagement, uh, it's pretty obvious. You know, I was at dinner the other night. They have a, there was someone uh, new in the job, nine months at the Bank of England. So the Bank of England has had a crypto person for nine months. I mean, that is not very long. I think that the, you know, when I talk about Web3, you know, our clients, clients of CoinShares, you know, there isn't a lot of ways to get exposure to Web3, but that's where the bow wave is. What is their reaction to that? They go buy Ethereum, mm-hmm. or they'll, they'll even buy Bitcoin, or they'll buy Solana or FTT, which we have on our platform. Um, and they can participate in a proxy fashion. But at the moment, I think this kind of Web3 technology and the replumbing of many industries is a pipe dream for these people, and they are nowhere on the scale of getting that done. You still, in the same way that you looked at commodities and you're looking at the long, 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 long road, with Web3, I mean, clearly we're at the very beginning then, and do you see it as like achievable and achievable in the next 10 years, or is it something that, you know, something else could come along and completely derail it? Um, I think it is very achievable. Um, I think people sometimes don't see the full picture. So if you take something like NFTs, and most people I talk to will go, oh, can I sell a picture on Web, you know, an NFT on Web3 because Ronaldo got 600 grand for his or something. Can I do that? And and sure, you know, some of these NFTs will be incredibly valuable. Um, But I don't think that's the real story. I see NFTs as a two-way channel of communication between your community like your fans or your investors and your business, be it a brand or a sports team. And um, in my capacity as a council member of the Tazos Foundation, we recently published our large sponsorship deal for Manchester United. Uh, This is a very, very powerful brand. And it's not just going to be pictures of Ronaldo. I mean, over time, you can put loyalty points down that channel. You can put tickets down that channel. And then in reverse, your fans could vote on what colors of what colors your shirt that you play in, or who's on the team, or who's managing the team, mm-hmm. ultimately. So you've got this two-way channel of communication, and I think that will be de rigueur. Um, so these things are coming. Um, briefly on Metaverse, Metaverse is going to be as common for companies in five years as websites are today. It's sort of like a new um, way to do governance, right? Or a new way to gamify assets. I think we're, we're sort of seeing something similar with, with our partnership with Formula E, where they've got like a fan boost and fans can vote on stuff. And if this was moved onto a blockchain or if it was powered by NFTs, giving you certain voting rights, you know, it all seems like that's just around the corner and really going to help. I don't use the word solidify, but, you know, or like create more mass adoption. But it'll does it feel like just another step in the road to you like these, these things or are they more major than that look i think you could look at any number of vectors and see how meaningful web3 is uh you as you just mentioned i mean you're you're you're, you're bordering on the concept of a decentralized autonomous organization now i don't know how many companies i've started and rotated and sold or closed but you know the process is company's house it's registration it's memorandum articles of association it's shareholder agreement it's voting rights it's proxy voting i mean it is archaic how this is done and not just in terms of the mechanics in terms of the mentality mm. of it and so to me you know i think that, that the very concept of the dow um look you can fly a plane across the atlantic and land it in a storm with a computer i'm saying you can run a company with code and therefore, I think that, you know, that is just another example. So Metaverse is your new web page. NFT is your new commun- communication channel. DAO is your new governance mechanism. And I just think it goes everywhere. 
I think for a lot of people in the crypto space, one of those milestones that's been talked about for so long and we haven't quite hit it yet, at least in the North American markets, is like an ETF, right? And they think when when the SEC finally gives the stamp of approval to an ETF, that will be the final nail in the coffin for the argument that crypto is just a fad or a bubble. How Do you buy that argument? And do you think it's it's coming soon? Or should we just look to European exchanges and, and jurisdictions for this kind of innovation? Yeah, I look, I, the, the debate right now is should you have a physically backed TTP or a, or a, or a derivative backed TTP in the United States? And, and the economic answer is very straightforward. It should be physically backed. And it should be physically backed for the same reason that the negative roll and friction of rolling the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index you know, which has been studied by all kinds of uh, professors and PhDs, was proved to be um, a, a real drag on performance. You know, the physically replicated index, particularly for a commodity that has zero storage costs, is definitely the way to go. But you're talking about, a mind, in my mind, at this point in time, it's a tweak. It is not material, um, and I don't think it moves the needle in any way, shape, or form. So let's compare and contrast then a little bit like North America versus Europe because Europe has ETPs left, right, and center. It's almost commonplace now mm-hmm. versus the US where it's an entirely different yeah. picture. Why Why has Europe been so welcoming or accommodating of digital in innovation and transformation? Because for me, I would sort of assume, you know, America, land of the free, we can build and do anything would have been at the forefront of this, but... It's a subtle subtle argument, um, and it's not obvious. Uh, Firstly, exchange-traded products in the form that we have them uh, in Europe have have been much more prolific and much more common in Europe than they have in the United States. And that's not to say there aren't ETPs and ETFs, but in the the US, there's a much stronger sort of culture around the ETF, which is essentially a diversified basket of stocks, usually, uh, but you know, but there are things that you know, the 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 oil ETP does look very much like an ETP, for example. But the culture in Europe for these exchange traded products is is much stronger to start with, and lots and lots of investing in the past, and lots and lots of commodity investing because especially people like the Italians, Germans are quite friendly towards commodity investing. This was the way to deliver product to them. Perhaps the bigger reason is that in Europe, or not, not technically Europe, but in Switzerland you've had a regulator that has been out front supporting crypto, bringing the rest of the financial services industry, bringing uh, the regulator along with them on the journey. And the vast majority of these exchange-traded products listed initially on Swiss 6. We actually predated that with our XBT provider in Stockholm, in NASDAQ. But that's almost grandfathered. Like, if you try to do that again today, you could not do that. But we were there before anyone else in 2015, and, um, but today, the route is you, you list through Switzerland and then you, you passport to these mm-hmm. other jurisdictions. So it's a well-trodden path, but you need someone in the path that really grabs it and says, we want to do it. That's been the Swiss. In America, people kind of tripping over themselves a little bit. So that's what's driven this, this, this growth, I think. And I guess the Swiss also, I mean, it wasn't just talk and it wasn't a sandbox or, you know, a commitment to have a framework at some point in the future. They were like, this is how you do it. Th- apply here. These are the rules, and go forth and prosper. Right? We we have a regulated company in Switzerland called GTSA, which issues a gold token, and it had to get licensed by Finma. And um, and I've got to tell you, um, so we did the two years of legal work, and I'm going back to sort of 2016, 17 at this point. 
to 2019, we go see FINMA, we're working with a local Swiss law company, and they said to me, don't be shocked when you meet the regulator. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, because he won't look like any regulator you've ever seen. Now, we know what the archetypical regulator looked like. It's male, pale, and stale. Um, this guy was in his mid-20s. He had a long haircut. He had an open shirt, and he had a couple of earrings. <laughs> um, but he knew crypto. Yeah. And I have not yet to this day met a regulator that knew as much about crypto as him. So they put the, they put the brains up front, and they suborned the regulations behind that. And that was a really smart move and it's paid them great dividends. Do you look at any other sort of jurisdictions, whether Europe or North America or anywhere else that maybe aren't competing with Switzerland, but that are at least trying to catch up and at least demonstrate a similar kind of forward thinking? Look, Switzerland had a first mover advantage because it definitely, you know, opened those gates way before anybody else. I think you've got to, got to sort of break the world into, into a few classes here. You've got the Russias and Chinas of the world who, in the face of it, don't want to get involved at all, usually countries with capital flight problems. You have countries which are very pro, like Switzerland. You have countries which want to be pro, like the United States, but have their own internal struggles and confusions, like interagency, SEC, CFTC. Uh, and then you have countries like the UK, where, unfortunately, you know, a a focus on the risks of crypto have drowned the focus on the opportunities of crypto. So you've got all these different, you know, um, uh, classes, and, but they're not static. You know, mm. as we've seen recently, the UK mm. is now trying to bootstrap a new initiative and we'll see how they do. Um, and, uh, and in a way, you would even argue that Europe's taken a step backwards uh, with the prescriptions and the restrictions around MICA. Mm -hmm. So these players are ebbing and flowing uh, as time goes on. and uh, But there's still a very, very long way to go in this race. And I guess it'll probably help eventually when we sort of put to bed more arguments on, on the ESG fund about climate impact or, you know, more crypto assets move to proof of stake chains, which arguably have less of a, of a footprint. And I suppose that will help the regulators, it'll help investors, uh, help just the general public to understand things a little bit better. Well... Look, I, I'm not a big fan of ESG, uh, or certainly not the E. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, ironically, uh, the reason that we have a cost of living crisis that is going to get way worse, and the reason we have inflation at multi-decade highs, is because we demonise the carbon companies for the last 10 years, to the point where British Petroleum is considering itself green and trying to transition, transition out of hydrocarbon. Then when you have a shock, uh, then you have a huge problem, and that's where we are. And I think with, um, with crypto, again, has anyone done the math on if I'm running a proof-of-work network and I switch off every single light in every single bank and in every single ATM machine around the world? We actually tried to scope that out once, and it's not an insignificant number, mm. but no one complains about a million ATM machines running 24-7 around the world. Um, you Again, just the same in the regulatory context, you've got to balance the risk against the reward. And and to me, um, you know, I'm sort of agnostic between proof of work and proof of stake, but if I had to put all of my money in one protocol, it would be proof of work. That's interesting. Um, why? Because I think that the, the concept of proof of stake um, becomes potentially corruptible through collusion. And it might be collusion on a very, very high level and a very, very big scale. But I don't think that, or 
may not be impossible, but I think it's far, far less likely in a proof-of-work context. With a 51% attack? Yeah. Just yeah. because of the... I mean, because of the size of the Bitcoin network, um, I don't know other proof-of-work layer ones that have that same level of... You know, Nothing's even sure close. And, you know, I think Bitcoin miners are making, what, 40 million a day or something. You know, this is the kind of number. Mm. I mean, add that up day after day after day and think about how much you'd have to put in proof of stake to generate that kind of interest. Mm. You know, the proof of stake would have to be a lot larger. And I think what we've seen very clearly recently in, the, um, in a recent hack was someone flash loans, buys all the governance tokens of the network, re- redirects all the money on that network to themselves, you know, this is what happens when your stake is corrupt or your stake is too mm. small. Now we have 19,000 cryptos, many of which are proof-of-work systems, sorry, proof-of-stake systems. And, um, and I, I, you know, it reminds me of the early days when every new exchange would get hacked, like Mt. Gox and Bitfinex and all these, everyone got hacked at some point. Mm. That's all been cleaned up. It seems to be now some of these weaker proof-of-stake networks, especially the bridges between, between blockchains, are very vulnerable and they're getting hacked a lot. So I have my concerns about that. I'm not saying it can't work. ETH2 is probably going to be great, but um, but not everyone can have a proof of stake network. It's yeah. just not enough stake. And I guess a lot of people we've been talking to who are you know big advocates for proof of stake or you know ETH merge. One of the drawbacks that currently exists that they're all sort of hoping to collectively work towards is more interoperability mm. and the ability to you know have cross chain transactions yes. and. Do you think that's, I'm not going to say it's a Bitcoin killer, obviously, but is that opportunity to have real interoperability between blockchains enough of a feature that Bitcoin might actually suffer as a result? You know, I'm particular, I, maybe I'm being uh, influenced by the most recent events, but I was in Lugano at the Cytel conference last week and Gavin was there, Gavin Wood was there, who holds the double gold medal of founding both Ethereum and Polkadot. And and I, look, I'm not, I'm not, Polkadot sort of advocate or spokesman, but I would say that the logic of abstracting away large amounts of the commonality that exists between any individual blockchain and any other blockchain and creating a layer zero, as they like to call it, Mm. is a very compelling argument. Mm. Uh, It makes me think of kind of Amazon Web, Amazon Cloud, sorry, you know, you're not going to run your own version of Ubuntu if you can run one off of Amazon Cloud. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the concept of parachains also makes a lot of sense. Um, Gavin was announcing actually at this conference that in a week's time, they're going to get the XCM up and running, which is cross-chain messaging. Now think about cross-chain messaging. That means if you create a sword on one blockchain and you want to play a blockchain game on another blockchain, and then you want to take that sword and lend it to somebody else because you're taking a vacation and they can use it, and then they want to take that sword and stake it on DeFi and, and do some farming. And all of these parachains can talk to each other sitting on the main relay chain. That's a very powerful argument. It almost looks to me like that's 3D blockchain instead of 2D blockchain. Does that affect Bitcoin? Not at all. You know, I think Bitcoin is and always will be, you know, the gold standard of crypto. It's where everybody goes when there's stress, from within the crypto space at least. And I think... All my, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on if you look at uh, Lightning Networks, if you look at the Mercury Wallet, if you look at um, um, uh, Ocean, not Ocean Protocol, the uh, block, Blockstream uh, implementation. You know, there's some stuff, you know, there's some stuff going on. It's nothing compared to what's going on on other blockchains. And, and people, I think, would argue that 
Bitcoin should be basic. Mm. It should be understandable. It should be consistent. Mm. And um, and I think that's where its place is. I, you know, I know it's been said many times, but the gold of digital assets, I think, is is, is Bitcoin. I'd like to just change tactics here a little bit and and look more at coin shares. And because sure. I think what you guys are doing right now with some of your ETPs are quite innovative because mm. you're introducing yep. real crypto concepts to traditional. Yes financial services products. Yes, so you've got, um, you know, share of staking rewards That's through right. an ETP. How do you explain that to traditional investors? Do you, is it, do you say it's like a dividend, but you know, you get the individual rewards and they're from well, different look, chains. My, my hat goes off to our product team and our CEO, Jean-Marie Mognetti, to Townsend Lansing, who runs products, to Frank Spiteri, who runs sales. Um, and to, to, and to our lawyers, because <laughs> yeah. this... They never yeah, get enough credit. <laughs> this, is, this is something that, I mean, and I, I don't like to, to dish on, on the competitors, but there were some products out there that were put out there that did not share the rewards that, um, that we are currently sharing. Of course, when you do share them, they say you should share more, but <laughs> it's a start, right? And, and in order to do that, you have to marry two very different things. You have to mm. marry a pretty strict regulatory infrastructure with some pretty complex staking. Um, and I don't want to give all the way all the secrets about how we do that, but you know, we have our own custodian where we have a lot of, should we say, innovative ability to 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 steer the direction that they're going. Um, we were early stage investors in Block Demon, who are a great service provider, uh, staking as a service, let's call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have our own teams that specialise in rules and regulations around issuing products around Europe, and we had to bring all of that together. Uh, to do what we did. So, so yeah, I mean, the way I'll pitch this to investors, I mean, look, if you go to an investor and say there are zero fees, they immediately like it. I mean, it could be a cheese sandwich. I mean, they don't <laughs> care if it's free, I'll invest in it. Um, and then they get the idea that they actually are getting, and they're not getting a dividend because there's all sorts of tax implications about this as well. And technical implications. ETPs can't really pay out like a dividend would on a normal stock market. There isn't the channel technically to do it. So you build it into what's called the coin entitlement and, and how much per ETF, you know, how many coins per ETF you're, you're entitled to and you can, you can put it in there. So it's quite a puzzle to put it together. But in, this, in essence, you know, and, and I think Polkadot is the best example, this is a great technology that you can buy an ETP for free. Your ownership of Polkadot goes up through time. And, um, and, and you know, for the vast majority of people in the traditional investment world, they don't have any other access, any other way to access that and, and those rewards and that technology. So that's a really great product. And how's, how's the demand been so far? Because it's still it's new, right? Very, it's very new. It's yeah. very, very new. I mean, we, 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 it took us, you know, a good year and a half to crack that puzzle. And, and now that we've picked, obviously, and we launch into a down cycle in mm-hmm. crypto, but what is happening is we're actually getting a lot of market share. We're getting much more market share at the low levels we're seeing today than we would traditionally, which to me says these products are getting traction. And are you finding the investors that are coming and investing in products like this, are they arriving today with a lot more base understanding of crypto or is there still a huge education piece to do? Are they interested or are they just, I need exposure, Look, how can you give it Let's call them? a spade a spade. I mean, across most of Europe, the, the you know, I mean, we have an XBT provider where we've got some numbers and we have 140,000 holders um, and if you looked at the per account asset it tails off very very fast to a large number of small holdings mm. and, and I'm, I'm not I haven't seen data recently across the rest of Europe but 
you can be pretty sure that currently this is essentially a retail product. Um, we do not see much. Now, now, retail investors aren't bad at educating themselves, as it so happens. There's a podcast, um, Ivan, on tech in Sweden. He's all over it all the time, especially for the Swedish-based products. Um, he has a couple of hundred, 300,000 viewers on that. And the, you know, that could be a, the largest bulk of our community of holders, for example. So the retail guys are quite good. The, you know, America, there's clearly some. Now, we, you know, we don't have a great handle on that doing what we do but clearly there are you know meaningful institutional involvement now and you know coinbase now claims to have seven thousand institutional clients i'm not sure how institutional they are but it's a big number however you look at it and we don't have that in europe yet and the education level in europe where it's high at the individual retail investor level you know when it comes to corporates they've got like their blockchain guy now but the blockchain guy and this is a job you never want to have has now got to educate the board of you know, sock gen, uh, how to invest in digital assets. And, and so, you know, it's just the frontier has moved. The problem mm. hasn't been solved and we're closer to the pot of gold, but uh, there's still a long way to go inside those institutions. So the, it's, it's funny that like, these corporates now have the blockchain guy, right? And as the crypto industry grows, I mean, the brain drain out of traditional finance into crypto companies is huge. You were probably one of the earliest adopters and earliest transitions out of TradFi into crypto. So, do you have advice for people who are stuck in TradFi who want to get out, or you know, what kind of questions should they be asking of their prospective new employers before moving over? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, raise a few points in my mind. Uh, so, my daughter's about to graduate Columbia Business School, uh, and I'm going over to New York next week to celebrate that. And she told me that her faculty professors are shocked. She used the word shocked at how many of her classmates are leaving not for Morgan Stanley mm. and not for Goldman, but for something in crypto. And this, this is a, a significant year for mm. that, uh, by all accounts. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's very noteworthy, and I kind of get it. I mean, not only is it sort of a much more appealing community for young people, mm. um, the rewards in the last few years have been absolutely, and I don't think, you know, future performance is not guided by the past, have been very, very strong. So they're like, oh, let me get this right. We make more money, we have more fun. <laughs> Goodbye, Goldman. Yeah. And, and that, I think, has been a factor, right? The other factor that you've got to mention here is, so my friend Previn Singh, who runs the Center for Blockchain Excellence at Credit Suisse, and uh, we were on a panel the other day, and, you know, they got their team, okay? I don't want to say they've got, you know, 10 or 15 people, right? Um, Lex Solokin from Consensus was there as well, who pointed out that in the Ethereum global community, there are now half a million developers. Wow. Now, Credit Suisse is trying to roll out their own blockchain digital solution with 15 guys, while the Ethereum group is doing it with half a million. They're like 5,000 to one outnumbered in terms of developers. And this is the part the corporates don't get. You know, this, this future... FinTech is not going to happen on private blockchains. I said this in 2015, 2016. There was some hiatus. Those companies disappeared. Now they're coming back. Mm. You know, they were individual companies back in 2016, and now they're actually corporate, you know, corporate subgroups. It's not going to happen on, on private blockchains at all. So I would say um, get out of the TradFi business. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. I mean, those numbers... Uh, if, you have a, if you can find a lifeboat, jump into it. Those numbers make it sound like the banks won't even be able to actively hire their blockchain projects off well, the ground, right? They're going to have to license it. Look, I mean, 
if the banks were going to acquire, they should have done it a couple of years ago. You know, I mean, blockchain.com has gone in, you know, in my life from a twenty from probably a seventy-five million dollar valuation to a fourteen point five billion dollar valuation. The time to acquire it was is gone. <laughs> it has gone. Um, and and that may not be true for every company, but uh, a that's going to be pretty expensive if you want to buy anything meaningful now. And b you know, what does the team think about that? Mm. Probably probably they don't think much about it to be mm. honest. So what's the next big thing on the agenda for coin shares? We've got we're really busy. Uh, we're really really busy. Um, so uh, if I if I said there were three things we're trying to do, uh, thing number one is you know I mentioned these new and in innovative products that we took a long time to put together. Having figured out the cookie cutter, there's a lot of cookies coming off that particular uh, table. So we are hard at work, um, and we will be issuing new products at quite a fast rate now um, that we think are engineered pretty well. So that's that. Number two, we acquired a company called Napoleon. Um, that is essentially going to, it's a French company, about 30 employees. Uh, we announced that for about three or four months ago. We're hot on the heels of integrating their essentially consumer solution into what we do. It's kind of a copy trading platform mm. like eToro. Uh, third thing we're doing, um, which I think might be the most exciting thing, we now own one third of a Swiss bank. And so after many, many years of fighting with banks, we've decided that we need to have our own one. And we're going to try and build a really crypto-friendly bank where you come along as copper and you say, we're in the crypto business and we don't say, please leave the premises. And we want to be like the exact opposite direction. We want to be, you know, kind of like Silvergate has done yeah. so successfully in America. Yeah. Only we want to be, rather than a commercial crypto-friendly bank, a an investment crypto-friendly bank. So... We want to offer financing. We want to offer direct access to markets outside of crypto. You know, traditional assets. We want to offer access to crypto. We want to offer staking. Um, there are a couple of other already licensed, you know, uh, Swiss fin uh, crypto banks. Um, but I think our aspirations are to make it much broader in terms of the offering. Uh, and so it's those three things that our team are working really hard on. Well, that'll certainly be a very welcome change to the the banking scene and the crypto scene. Um, before I let you go, we have about like ten questions that we just ask everyone. It's meant to be quick fire, but quick fire. Let's we go. inevitably get into the weeds. Two, it, so. two word answers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, um, the crypto business industry. Let's let's focus on institutional institutional crypto in one year versus ten years. Well, that presumes that the institutions will still exist, and I'm not sure they will. In ten years, hopefully not one yes. year. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I, Ed Hesse, the founder of Energy Web and, and big uh, uh, Polkadot aficionado, said this something the other day. He was asked, when are you going to cash out your your huge holdings in crypto? And he said, you don't understand. You're cashing out into my world. I'm not cashing out into your world. And I think, honestly, um, I think that's on the cards. It's a good perspective. Um, if there's one thing you could change about the crypto industry, mm. what would you change? That's a really tough one. There's so much. Uh, even that part, I love. You know, it's just... You know, there's there's an element of you know cage fighting in what's gone on in crypto. I, I think the best word in crypto is anti fragility. You know, the sense that you know Barclays' tech system on finance has been walled for thirty years, and it's the same as it was thirty years ago. Mm -hmm. No one can get in, and no one can get out. You put a crypto system out there, day minute one, T zero, it is getting hacked. Mm -hmm. And if it survives, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's such a virtuous cycle. So. So when I when I see any craziness going on in crypto, that always f falls into that same category. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And um, so I, I don't know. I, I I say keep the craziness. That's what I, that's what I you know, stop the normality. Long live crazy. Yeah. 
Is there a piece of technology in your personal life that you couldn't live without? My set of golf clubs. Fair enough. What's your handicap? Four. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing on that. Okay. Um, might answer my next question as well, which is, what does your weekend look like if you get time off? Um, well, it depends. Um, I travel a lot. So, you know, there's always a little bit of like, you got to, you know, successful, you know, public company chairman seen at the co-op on a Friday afternoon picking up supplies because there's nothing in his flat in Jersey. Um, <laughs> that happens. Okay. <laughs> um, as a, but like, you know, I worked most of last weekend either on business stuff or admin. Um, but then otherwise I'll be on the golf course probably. Uh, I don't know if you're a film buff, but are there any films that you could watch over and over again and never get tired of? Battle of Britain. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a patriot. And I was born on the south coast of the UK, so, and it was obviously well before my, my time, but my grandfather was in the RAF. I was a pilot when I was younger, uh, you know, and, and like sort of uh, fighter trainer, aerobatic planes over the White Cliffs of Dover. So I always get a bit teary-eyed watching uh, the Battle of Britain in black and white for the 25th time. Do you have any catchphrases or mottos that you live by? Yes. Be thyself. Very good. Who should we all follow on Twitter? And you can shout yourself out here. Um, I, I'm not, you know, I, I, the, my favorite person to follow is my good friend and good colleague, uh, Melton Tabiris. Um, Melton, apart from being a, a great intellect, is an incredibly fun person, you know, much younger than I. Um, sometimes I have to ask for translations of what she's saying, what the letters mean, you know, we WGMI, that took me a couple of weeks <laughs> to figure out. Um, but uh, she covers a lot of stuff. You'll see beautiful pictures of, of New Hampshire lakes and forests, and you'll see the most deep, deep thoughts about crypto um, and everything in the middle. She's a great advocate for the space. To Absolutely. Be sure. um, what was the last thing that surprised you? Uh, Rishi Sunak's statement that the UK was going to be the crypto hub of the world. <laughs> <laughs> we won't unpack that. This is supposed please, to be quick fire. <laughs> okay, um, who's the next guest we should have on the show? The next guest you should have on the show. Interesting. Is that how I got here? <laughs> I'm not sure how I got here. I can't even remember. I don't know. I, you know, again, I, I come from I come from a biased perspective because I just been a bit immersed in this for the last few days, but. It is. It's. It's hard not. It's hard not to like what Gavin Wood has to say. Saying to my colleague that you know on the way here how Gavin ended up as a co-founder of Ethereum and uh, he was while working on some sort of legal startup, techno, you know, legal tech startup. He was given the white paper by Vitalik and spent three or four weeks in a darkened room writing the first implementation of the Ethereum network in C++. Handed it to Vitalik, who said, "Do you want to be the CTO of Ethereum?" It was a life-changing offer. Um, and you know, as he as he says, you know, he's he's more theory. And when I when I first saw the Polkadot, him present, that I saw the first presentation he made about Polkadot, and my first thought about it was, this is three D blockchains instead of two. And I think um, I think he's a really. I mean, I don't know if you've had him on or not before. If you could get him, but he's got, you know, if you if you know that much about Ethereum and you 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 drop it all to build something better, um, it's a compelling argument. And and he speaks. High level, but, but very, very, very well about that subject. Last question. If you somehow managed to meet Satoshi, but you only got to ask one question, what do you want to know? 
I say, will you marry me? <laughs> Fair. Because <laughs> then you get half the private keys, right? <laughs> Excellent. Um, Danny, thank you very much for coming in. I've enjoyed this conversation. To our listeners, if you haven't already seen Danny's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on Twitter at CopperHQ or find it on the website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which includes links to all the week's top stories as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a good review in whichever streaming platform you're using. And of course, if you want to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co like to be a guest on the show or if you know someone who should be give us a shout we're here to talk all things institutional crypto the show is only made possible because the technical and creative wizardry of tally spear with support from melee malfoy and eva lila new episodes coming out soon and in the meantime stay safe